0: Critical thinking is not necessarily something that we're just good at. I hate to say it, but it's not something that you just develop just because you go to college. You gotta teach it and you gotta work on it. And some things you're never gonna change your mind about even if you're very, very wrong. But at least people can get out there with some ability to maybe be fooled or or someone's trying to fool them and they're able to sort of say, wait, something's wrong. I need to look more
1: into this. We live in a world of information right at our fingertips. We can access scientific research, published articles, and news sources through our desktop computers, our laptops, and even our mobile phones. But what happens when that research and that information is incorrect? What if it's just downright false or the research behind it is flawed? Furthermore, What happens when we are hardwired not to believe the research and the science that is out there? Today on Tartan Talks, we are speaking with Dr. Pete McLaughlin from Edinburgh's psychology department. He's gonna talk about how you can spot effective research, how you can do your job to find the best information that's out there. He also talks a little bit about our own biases and why we are programmed to believe in our guts rather than believe what we see from professional scientists it's an interesting topic and i think with all the information that's out there whether it's from climate change or the covid 19 pandemic or anything science related i think it's a very interesting chat to look into ourselves and figure out what we're doing what we're thinking so thank you for joining us today on tartan talks we have dr pete mclaughlin you're going to want to stick around for this one it's a very interesting topic and i think it'll help us go forth in this world of information This is Tartan Talks, a podcast from Edinburgh University. I'm your host, Christopher LaFuria. Each month, we'll take a look at individuals who make Edinburgh an exciting, diverse, and profound place to discover your passions. All right, thank you for joining us here today on Tartan Talks. We have Dr. Peter McLaughlin from Edinburgh University's Psychology Department. He's a professor here. He's been teaching and researching behavioral neuroscience since 2006. When he was earning his PhD from Stony Brook University, he studied the role of hippocampal neuropeptides on memory. And then he completed a postdoctoral fellowship at University of Connecticut, where he researched the biological basis for addiction and motivation. Uh, A lot of his research here at Edinburgh focuses on behavioral pharmacology, and he teaches classes in drugs and behavior, experimental psychology, behavioral neuroscience, and critical thinking. So, Dr. McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining us here today on Tartan Talks. Thanks a lot, Chris. I really appreciate it. I'm I'm a big fan of the show. All right. Thank you. I've been wanting to do this episode for a while now, because in the last couple of years with COVID-19 with climate change, with a lot of the issues that have become at the intersection of politics and science. We see a lot of people using faulty research, not using thorough research, and some people having indifferent attitudes towards professional science and not listening to scientists. And I want to start off with a quote that I think will kickstart our conversation. It's from the celebrated Stanford University psychologist, Leon Festinger. In the 1950s, he said, and this is before COVID, this is before Ebola, this is before a lot of the virus uh, and pandemic that we've had. He said, a man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree and he turns away. Show him facts or figures and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic and he fails to see your point. So that's gonna kind of be the basis of what we're gonna talk about today. People's attitudes towards science, people's understanding and misunderstanding of groups like the FDA. And then, you know, how in 2021 can we use all these distractions such as social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, how can we use all of these tools and not let them dilute true science, how can we find a good Scientific report, or how can we do our research so that when presented with these ideas, we can give good feedback or that we know what we're talking about? So, before we get started, Dr. McLaughlin, uh, I gave a little introduction to your bio. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your research areas and a little bit about your work with behaviors and addiction and and that kind of stuff?
0: Sure. Well, I started out, my degree is in biological psychology. I've researched, I've always been fascinated by drugs brain chemicals and how they impact the brain and how all of that changes our behavior with a particular interest in cognition. So how different drugs and different brain systems impact how well we can multitask. That was kind of like a recent area of of, of study for me. Um, I worked for a long time on cannabinoid drugs, which are, you know, drugs that are like marijuana. You know, once discoveries were made in the about 30 years ago, there's been a wide range of, of different drugs that were developed that work on that system to try and help people. And so, I did a lot of the research on those kinds of drugs and the impact they have on on feeding and on memory and on things like that. You know, I've taught neuroscience here for a long time, and even you know before I came to Edinburgh, I, I taught it a good amount. I would teach people either an intro psych or in a neuroscience class. And there's a lot of myths about the brain. There's a lot, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that we talk about the brain much more than we used to. But there's also a lot of misunderstanding. So I would hear people talk about, say, you know, I'm I'm left brained or I'm right brained, or, you know, we only use 10% of our brain. And those are completely false. There's, there's really. You know, I particularly hate the one about saying that your left brain to right brains, because I would have someone say, oh, I can't figure this problem out. I'm just a right brain person. And I think that's an awful thing, because what it says to me is I am hardwired to not be able to. It's part of my basic disposition that I can't do math. And it's really not true. There are some differences between the what the left brain does and what the right brain does, but it's not as simple as what people think it is. Usually you hear the left brain is very logical and the right brain is very creative. And there's, you know, different takes on it that different scientists have. So, for instance, a lot of people believe that some scientists are finding that the right brain is more involved in the big picture, long-term planning, putting everything together, and the left brain focuses more on minutia. That's very different from the usual understanding. And not only that, but these don't operate separately. There are tons and tons of connections. There's this wide bandwidth of cells that connect the left and right brain. They're constantly working together. So you tell a student something like that, and they memorize it, they nod, they write it down. And then what happens is I can give them a test on it a month later, and they'll usually get the right answer. What happens after they graduate? And you hear all throughout society on TV and on social media, you know, some people are just left-brained and some people are right-brained. Or even there is a a local college of osteopathic medicine that had a commercial a few years back where they said, you know, we only use 15% of our brain. And that's just not true. And I know it because of my training. I know that we're using pretty much all of our brain all the time. Now that myth, I don't hate as much because what it sort of implies rather than the other one where you pigeonhole yourself is, Hey, we can, we can, we have potential. We can get better. We can train ourselves to do better things. So it's not really, you're using more of your brain, but you're using your brain better. So I don't hate that one nearly as much, but you tell that to a student and then they see a commercial on it and they have to put these things together in their minds. They have to go, wait a minute. I learned this in psychology class. But now I'm seeing a commercial from a medical school that's telling me this is a fact. And what might happen is something called source confusion, where you hear we only use 10% of your brain. And eventually you're going to go, oh, yeah, Dr. McLaughlin told me that in my psych class. You're confusing where the memory came from because we have to make our memories make sense. So it actually can even backfire for me to just tell you this is a myth. It's not true. So then what I got more interested in is, okay, how do we give people the tools that they can try and figure this stuff out on their own, um, look things up in proper places and dispel some of the biases that they might have and get you know sort of sorted out in their own mind. And that's where the critical thinking class came from because more of the research was saying, just like you said, Um, critical thinking is not necessarily something that we're just good at. I hate to say it, but it's not something that you just develop just because you go to college, you got to teach it and you got to work on it. And some things you're never going to change your mind about, even if you're very, very wrong, but at least people can get out there with some ability to maybe be fooled or, or someone's trying to fool them and they're able to sort of say, wait, something's wrong. I need to look more into this. So like I have, I have a cousin who has been into karate her whole life and and a long time ago, she said, you know, it's not just about kicking butt. It's about, you learn this situational awareness. You learn as you're walking down the street, just to notice what's going on around you. So you're not caught off guard. Now that doesn't mean you're turning around and beating people up. It's just, you're noticing what's going on, right? So you're not overdoing it. You're not saying everything is a threat to me, but you're just, you have that watch that's just on. And that way you're able to go, wait a minute, something is a red flag here. Something's just not quite right. Let me just be careful. And I want people to be able to do that with things that they see. And more importantly, the biggest person who's going to try and fool you is you.
1: Yeah. And I always, I always thought that was interesting when it comes to being aware of red flags. So how do we get to the point where we are having the, the Jason Bourne situational awareness where we, where we know, and we can sense what's going around us how do we get that sort of sense that is very objective and science-based and not setting ourselves up to see red flags that are opinion-based? Like, I'm going to look out for people that are arguing this point because I'm preparing myself with these preconceptions. How do you get to the point where you're being doing it out of a scientific objective foundation? It's easier said than done, of course. One of the things that we talk about
0: is the concept of metacognition, which means thinking about your own thinking. So as you problem solve or as you make a decision to after the fact go, how did I do? Did I get the best possible outcome? Could that have gone better? Or sometimes did I do the absolute best I can and it just didn't work out in my favor? Because that's going to happen from time to time. So that's going to be part of it. Um, I think there are two main things that cause people problems with how they see the world. So one is naive realism and the other is motivated reasoning. So naive realism in psychology refers to the idea that we all think we're seeing the world completely clearly. I'm seeing everything very objectively through my senses and I'm making up my mind in an unbiased way. And what does that imply? That implies that people who see things different must be wrong. And I mean, just on a basic level, you can see why that's not true. I mean, there are so many limitations to how we understand the world from the limited bandwidth of the visual spectrum that we can even take in. There are so many sources of energy that are just passing through and around us all the time. And just the physics of it, we, we just have no idea what's going on then there's our own biases and there's the way mentally we have to make sense of the world i mean i'm even thinking about optical illusions why do optical illusions work they work because we are automatically processing things in a certain way maybe to make certain features of our world stand out but that means we're not seeing things completely clearly you know you can think of even the simple ones that most people have seen like what we call the muller lyer illusion which is the one where like there's the two arrows one is pointed there's two lines they're the same length one is surrounded by arrow points that are pointed in and the other they're pointed out and i can teach that all day long and i will still see one of those lines as longer than the other they're the same length that's just kind of what we're hardwired to do and that's just on a really simple level and that's a reminder of i am not seeing the world completely objectively on a very simple thing and that even that's even before i talk about my own motivations and what i want to be true and my own confirmation bias or how we remember things. Memory is not a visual recording of stuff. You know, there's, there's a lot of research in psychology on things like eyewitness testimony. So they'll show somebody a car crash and uh, they'll ask people, did you see a broken headlight? And they'll say yes or no. Or another group of people, they'll say, did you see the broken headlight? Just that little switch, A eh? to so the. But in that second group, they're planting the seed that there was a headlight that was broken. Did you see it? And then when they ask them later on, describe the scene. That group, just with the way they ask the question of them is more likely to say, well, there was a broken headlight. So our memories change almost every time we remember something. So we're not seeing, perceiving, thinking about judging or remembering things accurately. So that's naive realism. And it leads to problems like we think our, where we fall on the political spectrum is the right place to be. And that anyone who's far from us, they must be extremists. Maybe we're the extremist, but we don't see it that way. We see that as the center point. Another issue is we see people who disagree with us since we're seeing things clearly as either they have an agenda and they're lying or they don't know what they're talking about or they're just conforming with their group. That's just groupthink. Even things like, there was a recent study, I forget who did it, musical taste. So that's something that you would assume is, is pretty, most people are like, yeah, it's subjective to each their own. But even then, it's like, well, why do you think, do you, you know, if, if you ask me, do you like country music, I'd say no. And um, so why do people like country music? Well, you know, I might say, you know, that's, that's what, like, if you grow up in a, in, in a farm, that's what everybody likes. So you're just going to do what other people say. And if you ask me, well, why do you like punk and heavy metal? I might start talking about aspects of the music. It's like, this is why this music is really good and not, well, I'm a white kid who grew up in an urban environment in the 80s and 90s. So I'm blind to how my cultural context
1: influenced how I see things, but I can definitely pick it out in other people. Interesting. Now, how do you think that there's a lot of metacognition and thinking about your own thinking and processing your own thoughts that I think a lot of us might be lacking or a lot of us need to focus more on. But I think where this gets tricky and those two items you just mentioned with the naive realism, like how does that impact when we start entering into the arena of debate and when we enter into the arena of discussing scientific research? Do you, do you see a big issue with that? So I know you've, you see students discussing major issues. I'm sure you see a lot on Facebook. You see a lot on social media. How, how are those con- how are those ideas impacting our basic conversations what, when, when we get to debating or questioning a topic?
0: Well, I think it's important to be aware of that. I mean, the second one that I was going to talk about is motivated reasoning, which is just, you know, you typically have skin in the game, right? Like anybody, you know, I, I hate when people say, oh, don't listen to this source or this or that. They have an agenda. Everybody has an agenda. Now, Some people's agendas are hidden and that's a problem, but everyone is coming from somewhere and everybody should be honest with themselves that before you read a news piece, there's a side you want to be right. You know, you want it to agree with what you believe. I think where both of these leads to problems is that everyone sees someone else as the problem. So when I tell people I teach a college class on critical thinking, usually what I hear them say is, oh, that's great. People need that. Kids today need that. College kids need that. Gen Z needs that. Only once in a while do I hear somebody say, oh, I really need that. And the irony is, I bet the people who have said that are already better off in terms of their thinking than everybody else, because they don't automatically assume that they're 100% accurate with how they call things and everybody else is the problem. Everybody is a great critical thinker when it comes to calling out other people's arguments. And in fact a lot of the research on it sort of says that if you just teach people cognitive biases, you know, I almost feel like it's Latin class, right? (laughs) It's like, you're just memorizing like, okay, so this is an ad hominem argument and and that's post hoc ergo propter hoc. And we're all great at somebody else on a podcast I was listening to recently, wasn't this one, so who cares, but the point (laughs) she made a good point, you know, doing similar things to what I do. And she said, what what I found was that teaching people about these biases just made them go, thank you. Now I know how, what's a call the people I disagree with. It's very hard to apply it to yourself.
1: I do. I I do a lot of that with um, the podcaster, Adam Grant. I listen to a lot of his uh, he's a organizational psychologist and he talks a lot about um, the workplace and you know, how people are givers and takers. And I always, when I started listening to it, I was like, oh, this is what I can spot in other people in my office, but uh, only recently have been able to say, well, maybe I'm guilty of something like that, or, or maybe maybe I'm the one that he's talking about in this episode. And I'm not going to lie, and I'm sure you'll agree with it. It's it's not easy work to be self-reflective and to be thoughtful of your own thoughts and your own perceptions too. So do you think that's where a lot of our attitudes and behaviors about science and about what's real comes from is how difficult it is to to be self-reflective or do you think it is an ignorance they don't want to do that or what what do you think is the issue when it comes to when it comes to explaining truth and when it comes to explaining science to people
0: well yeah I can talk a little bit about what we know is not really the issue um, for one thing, like I said, there's, there's evidence that if you just try and give facts to people, if, if they feel really strongly on a topic, giving facts just completely doesn't work. If anything, that might backfire as well because they're able to sort of overcome that and be even more firmly entrenched. Surprisingly, you know, what I hear thrown around online a lot is you need to take a science class. You know, I hear that from both sides of an issue very often. And it turns out, no, that's not really true either. People who know science fairly well, people who are better educated, if anything, they are also more polarized. There was a study where they looked at climate change and they asked people their perspective. And what they found was that the more educated someone is, the more polarized they were. So, yeah, people who believe climate change is real and we need to do something about it were more likely to believe that. They had more facts at their fingertips. But people on the other side were even more sure that they were right as well. Even people who had taken more science classes. Part of the reason for that might be there's also a literature on if you happen to be pretty smart you become very, very good at arguing your side. Classic example of that going way back was that Arthur Conan Doyle, who created Sherlock Holmes, most anal- one of the most analytic fictional characters of all time, he was very much into spiritualism and he paid people to help him communicate with dead relatives and things like that and move things with your mind. He was friends for a while with Harry Houdini and Houdini was a magician. And similar in a similar vein to Nowadays, it would be Penn and Teller or or in modern times, James Randi, these people who go, I know what you're doing. You're doing sleight of hand, except you're tricking people into thinking this is real. And he debated with Doyle and Doyle just never gave it up because in part and a lot of people believe it's because he was so articulate and so analytical. He turned it around and said, no, Houdini, I bet you're actually the magician. You're just trying to make me think that you're not. So that way. Um, you're trying to hide your secret powers. And again, very, very smart guy. So just being smart by itself isn't it. I think of it more as, you know, the mantra that I often repeat about critical thinking is I would rather be right than look right. So if I'm talking to people, I want to come to the right conclusion. And that's going to mean maybe don't like don't attack because what if you're wrong? If you attack somebody and you're wrong, then you're going to keep going. You're not going to, you know, you're going to keep doubling and tripling down. Um, instead, it's just like, hey, here's how I see things. Debating stuff online, though, unfortunately, doesn't doesn't really change people's minds. But especially if they're really entrenched, I'd like to think that there are some people who might be listening in on the conversation, who might take it take what you're saying seriously. I, I had this experience recently in spite of what I just said. I was just on some thread on a sports thing on social media and they were talking about how in a lot of stadiums you have to mask there might be vaccine requirements. And somebody said, I'm never getting that vaccine because the mRNA and it actually changes your genes. And I said, look, I, I had to reply to that because you know what I wanted to lead off with was open a freaking ninth grade biology textbook and you'll understand why that can't be. But Instead, what I said was, look, I know I'm not going to convince everyone, but just so people know, that's completely not true. mRNA cannot change your genes. It's downstream. It's like it's a photocopy of DNA. So scribbling on the photocopy doesn't change the source that it came from. Right. All the mRNA does is for a week or two before your body completely destroys it it makes these little spike proteins from the coronavirus so that way your immune system can detect them and go, oh, and now you're immune to coronavirus, right? So I said that. And his reply, of course, was, yeah, good luck with those spike proteins, buddy. How quickly, one second after I explained to him the existence of these proteins that are part of the immune response, has he already decided they must be harmful? But, you know, I did get a few likes from other people. So probably these were people who were on my side anyway. But these are the kinds of things you worry about. Like, if you're really thinking scientifically, you're not automatically going to assume that something is good or bad. So let's find out
1: more. Educate me. A question, and this this is probably somewhat involved, and I don't know if there's a specific answer, but who do you think, where does the fault lie in almost preparing us to be ill informed or like who, who is at fault for getting us information like this that appeals to our emotional systems I, I see a lot of people are blaming the media a lot of people are blaming people not educating themselves who is responsible for this or, or what i guess what personal responsibility do we have to to learn about the brain because it is complex we we gotta learn about our own behaviors and our own thoughts but where has this disconnect started where we just aren't consuming and digesting scientific research like you would hope, probably as a psychology professor? It's the
0: Illuminati. Not it's me. gotta
1: be the Illuminati. <laughs> no, well, that's the thing.
0: I can't give you a simple answer to that. I mean, I, I think some of the blame lies with the media, but I also think media's sources are large companies that are around to make money off what people want to consume. So that's where I fall on it. I'm not an expert in in media analysis, but I think it, I feel like what I see is this vicious cycle where things become more incendiary and that, and, you know, that sells and that makes people more emotional. And the the thing to do, I think if, if people are interested, you know, I've, I've dealt with some people who have talked to me about, the vaccine and said, you know, just, I have these questions, please explain this to me. And in in that situation, that sort of very direct fact-based analysis in that case for me worked. On the other hand, you can go online and, and look, and there are different organizations that sort of sort media companies by how far to the left or to the right are you? Are you doing things based in fact, or is it just screaming and yelling without a regard for facts? Those things are out there, but the the truth is some people are never going to believe them no matter what. There are fact-checking organizations out there. Pick the one you want, but a lot of them are, you know, award-winning and, you know, there's PolitiFact, there's Snopes, there's factcheck.org. And and oftentimes you can kind of look these things up. And the nice thing about those is they cite their sources. In class, when I talk about how do you trust something that you read, That's the number one thing that I go to is particularly for something health related. If you read about, um, you know, buy this product, it'll make you healthier, mental health, physical health, whatever. Do they cite their sources? Can you get access to the studies that they're basing their claims on? So that's always a good thing to look up to make sure you're not getting suckered. Another thing for me is be conscious of your own wishful thinking, your own motivated reasoning. So think about what side do I want to be right? And then there are some sources that tend to be less emotional, things that are in the middle. And if you're kind of on the left or the right, maybe look up one of those other sources. So, you know, Examiner, Wall Street Journal, NPR. These are things that most people kind of say, all right, they might be slightly, not completely down the line center, but it'd be good to see how they frame things.
1: Interesting. And I I think I've caught myself doing exactly what you were talking about when I was, Doing some basic research on the COVID-19 vaccine, I think the first thing I typed in at Google was, why is the vaccine good? And I think instead of doing that is, because I'm sure there are people that want to search, why is the vaccine bad? Because they're having like this argument first approach to it, where they're going to get all the details that support their preconceptions. Instead of just saying, you know, I want the facts, I want the information about the vaccine, so, and, and you can get a lot of quote unquote research when you're doing that sort of searching online. But I think what it comes down to is, you know, how to find the tested, the true, the replicated research. I mean, as a psychology professor, you've done a lot of research. You're no stranger to research, whether it's learning about impulse behavior or serotonin, dopamine, you've done your research. So coming from the research standpoint, And I know this is probably an entire semester course that you could teach on this. How do you find appropriate, adequate research that can help in any circumstance? So if if you're if you're looking at a scientific topic or if you're looking at the whatever the topic du jour is, what are some of the steps you should take to finding true, valid research?
0: Unfortunately, it does take, like you said, it takes some training. So, you know, the classes I teach, some of the ones I teach, like experimental psychology, which is a difficult course. What I think it sets people up to do is to understand what's a good research study and what's a bad one. And that's hard to do. Like I, like I said at the outset, I know reasons why we don't use 10% of our brain. Um, you know, I could rattle off a few, like just one. Um, cells actually, there's, there's a process called apoptosis where neurons will actually die. It's, you know, what's called programmed suicide if they're underutilized or injured. So if you weren't using brain cells, they would go away. You would only have 10% of your brain left. See, I know that, but I don't expect the average person to. And that's the challenging thing. Um, The important thing to do is come at these things with an open mind. Um, Be cautious how things are reported, because very often there's my favorite TED talk, is by a neuroscientist named Molly Crockett. And she talks about her research and how it was misinterpreted in the media. And she used the phrase, I, I can't agree with them because it goes beyond the science. In other words, she had a finding and they wanted to interpret it wildly differently from how it should have been. One a similar example to what she was talking about was there are a student not too long ago brought me this ad for weighted blankets. And weighted blankets are according to the ad going to help you release serotonin and that will help you with mood. Well, what that's based on is a few findings that massage. So deep pressure touch led to increases in serotonin and dopamine in the urine and saliva of different patients. So what's the problem there? The problem is like, that's not a weighted blanket. That's massage. I mean, touch is involved, but it's not the same thing. And and, then secondly, getting these neurotransmitters from urine or saliva might be convenient, but you have no idea what part of the body that came from. A lot of people don't know. They think of dopamine as the happy chemical. Well, dopamine also is involved in urine production. So just because there's more dopamine doesn't necessarily mean it's doing anything beneficial for you. What you really need to do is like a, what's called a PET scan, which is you inject a radioactive tracer and you image the brain with really expensive equipment. And I know they're not going to do that with a little kid just to see, but again, these things, its it, it can be very hard for people to look at that and without understanding how we gather this information to be able to sort of go, all right, this is probably bunk. And they, they really didn't directly test the claim that they're making that this particular product leads to serotonin release in the relevant parts of the brain for these good outcomes.
1: So with this information and with even just a little bit of training about finding adequate research, I feel like there is still a there is still a reflex for a lot of people to reject science based on their own preconceptions. But also if you look at research from FDA and CDC, like a lot of these alphabet soup organizations, people automatically see those and reject them because maybe they don't want to see it or maybe they don't understand it. Why do you think as consumers of research and as consumers of news, some people are more likely to object to that research even though it could be vetted or it's been validated and replicated? What is our human nature that causes us to reject such you know professional science?
0: yeah, I think you know it it goes back to a couple of things you know there's there's the side that you want there's the face that you've put forth through the world I am this kind of I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative and you know, you're gonna put arguments out there and it is very, very hard for people to change their minds. Like what we hope is that you learn a bunch of facts and then you form opinions, but it's the other way around. It's what we call confirmation bias. You have your opinions and then you play up the facts that agree with that and you denigrate or ignore the facts that disagree with that. So if you wanna say, for instance, again, Pharmaceutical companies that are putting out these vaccines have an agenda. Well, of course they do. That's why there's an FDA. You know where the FDA came from, like way back in the day, in the early 1900s. It was it was a very small government organization, and it was it was just about making sure food and drugs were honestly labeled and what was on the nutrition label. So like, you know, your child's cough syrup had the amount of cocaine and morphine that it said it did a hundred years ago, but. <laughs> Over time, what they realized is, yeah, pharmaceutical companies are going to try and get away with things, so the big change came in the early 1960s right after thalidomide. And thalidomide was a, for those who don't know, it was a sedative drug that was popular in Europe and we found out much later on, had been tested by a German pharmaceutical company on people in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And they wanted to approve it here in the US. And the FDA had to approve it. And it fell on a scientist, Canadian American scientist named Francis Kelsey, who, God bless her, lived to, to 2015. And um, she, of course, was, Getting a lot of pressure from the pharmaceutical industry. Of course, there are pregnant Americans who are saying, Hey, all, all these women are taking this drug for morning sickness and they're having a fantastic, you know, they're having a way better time. I can't get out of bed. And these government bureaucrats, you know, they, they don't know what they're doing. Just hurry up and approve this thing. And she said, No, we don't have all the safety data on this. And what happened in Europe was a rash of miscarriages because the drug was safe for people to take. But back then, they didn't think drugs could cross the placenta into a fetus. There were terrible birth defects. And the U.S. basically completely dodged a bullet there. There might have been four cases, and they were all people who had been to Europe to get it. Really, none of this happened. And that's where Congress said, oh, we need to make sure that the FDA has a slow, Methodical, transparent process of approving drugs. And then, even after drugs are approved, monitoring them for any new issues that come up, and they can pull a drug off the market if it's harmful. And they reject
1: drugs all the time. I mean, I, with, with the rise of the internet and with the rise of technology, it, I feel like we were supposed to get a lot of information at our fingertips. And it just seems like with the dawn of the internet, with the dawn of how quickly we can get this information, I feel like everything's been confusing. Like people are starting to have, you know, negative information, infiltrate. We have a lot of uh, pundits with their own agendas. Like, where do you see this going from here? Do you see anything changing as far as being able to go back to that trust of science and be able to go back to finding objective resources? Like, where are we right now?
0: I think what's going to have to happen, I mean, one of the things we know is that basically since the 50s and 60s, Americans are more distrustful of institutions, we're less likely to be joiners, you know, used to be you had lodges and unions and all kinds of organizations that people would be part of, and we've kind of gone away from that, we've become much more individualistic. I don't think that's going to change, but I think, you know, what I'm hoping is that We realize that what's going to help us is not necessarily, like I said, it's not going to be more education or even more science education, I don't think. There's enough research that kind of says that that's not going to change things. I think it's a change, hopefully, in the attitude people have towards how they approach things. Again, internalizing that I might not be seeing this clearly. So let me, before I open my big mouth, let me make sure that I've tested this idea fairly well things that people can do, like decide ahead of time, what would it take for me to change my mind? Or before I read a news study, acknowledge if I hear about like, oh, here's what happens when, you know, here's what a bunch of Black Lives Matter protesters did. Here's what happened to people who got the COVID vaccine. I know already ahead of time what I want it to say. So am I going to now distrust that source because it doesn't say what I want to. So decide these things ahead of time. What sources do I trust? What makes something good or bad? Do they cite their sources? Is it generally speaking a reputable place that I found information from in the past? Or is this a a, a news source that is trying to play on my emotions that very often is giving me like what we call sometimes anecdotal evidence, like this one terrible story of a thing that happened. And if I read that, then do the work and say, Is this a typical thing that happens? Is this common? If somebody had, so there was a very widely shared story about a doctor who died two weeks after getting a COVID vaccine not too long ago. Now, of course, whether the doctor actually died because of the vaccine or that was related to it is is completely, you know, up in the air. But people have already decided whether the answer is yes or no, right? But nevertheless, is this even, you know, regardless of how that works out, is this a common thing? Is this backed up by many, many studies, a typical thing that happens? Or is this, you know, pretty unlikely and rare? So the, um, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist, Daniel Kahneman, talks about, he has this, I think it's an acronym and it might be pronounced with C-I-D-I, it's not, it doesn't roll off the tongue, but <laughs> what you see is all there is, which is another bias, the idea that what's right in front of you sometimes we think is the only information we need to make a decision when, no, sometimes there's a wider context or if do I make a decision on this, whether this is good or bad? Well, relative to what? So um, even things that, you know, any drug is gonna harm somebody, right? That's why there's the FDA. And that's why we make sure that generally speaking, more people are helped by this than if this drug were not here. That's the decision that gets made. Every drug is going to have a side effect, particularly if you take it at high doses. So, you know, we think about these things, but then it's in the context of, all right, well, this is, these drugs, these vaccines are fighting something that have killed 600,000 Americans. And since people started taking them and there was for a while that huge dip in the number of cases that happens, you know, that suggests that probably hundreds of thousands of lives have been saved. So, you know, as we're judging, is this good, is this bad? What do I as a citizen want to tell my elected officials in charge of the FDA to do? Where are my values? Where are the values of, of the country? It's important to keep all of this information in mind and not just let that one news story play on
1: you. Yeah, I think when I'm looking at proper research, I always look at, if somebody is doing an actual experiment, I always look at the the sample size too. And if people have been able to replicate it, because you can get certain results, but if you're only sampling a handful of people, or it's not representative, or you don't have the right people involved in it, it, it can get really sketchy. And I think it does take a lot of extra effort to to research all of this and, and to find out, to, to to research your research too. So. One can only hope that, you know, as we continue to get more information and more situations such as climate change or COVID pandemic, that we are using our resources effectively.
0: One of the it's it's good that you know these kinds of things and things to look for. I mean, one of the things that I saw recently was that the 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 drug that some people think is helpful for coronavirus, hydroxychloroquine, the research on that. Um, has a lot of the problems he talked about. So there was one study that was criticized by a researcher, by a biologist named Elizabeth Bick, and she's currently being sued by the study authors for just pointing out some things that people should know about this study. If you talk about an FDA clinical trial, and by the way, you can go to clinicaltrials.gov and anybody can look up any of the clinical trials on any drug, actually most of the research being done on humans in the United States, or that's funded by American money is, is on that website. And you can see what the study is about. You can even see if they're recruiting and if, and if you wanna join it. There's that transparency. It's also nice that studies nowadays, you know, scientists have done things in the past couple of years to make the science more rigorous, like pre-registering. It used to be that I would do a study And if I didn't get what I want, I could fudge my numbers a little bit. I could exclude certain participants, but now you're expected to pre-register a study, which means I need to declare ahead of time. Here's how many people I'm going to get. Here's exactly how I'm going to run the study. Here's when and how I'm going to test people. So that way, at the end of the study, if there's any discrepancy between what you planned and what you actually did, you have to justify that. Now, sometimes things come up, but you have to say, yeah, here's what what I said I was gonna do, and here's the reason I couldn't follow that. With hydroxychloroquine, the study was pre-registered, but they said they would, for instance, test people on day seven after the drug, and they didn't. Um, the study only had like 40 something people in it total. An FDA clinical trial, a phase three trial will have thousands of participants. Yeah. They didn't randomly assign, which is a huge issue. In other words, they recruited some people from one medical clinic and they gave them all the drug. And then most of the control participants came from other medical clinics. But what if that one medical clinic where people got the drug happens to be really good and just did a really good job? They also excluded participants if they got too sick. And it's like, well, that's going to make your drug look better if you're just kicking people out of the study. If you know one person died, an FDA clinical trial where... of the treated population gets so sick, they can't continue. That study would be shut down instantly. I have seen it happen. I've seen it happen where one drug that I followed for years, just never made it in the United States because out of thousands and thousands of people, maybe four people attempted suicide who received the drug and two people in the control group. And this kept happening in different clinical trials. And based on those small numbers, they said, all right, that's, that's too much of a risk. Interesting. You know, that's that's what the government does, because, you know, when things work right, they don't always I could go on and on about mistakes that have been made. Absolutely. But when things go right, they're transparent and they try and follow the rules that keep
1: us from being blind to our own biases. So as we close up our chat, which uh, I'm definitely going to have to have you back on the show down the road because we talked on a lot of interesting topics, but there's definitely more. Uh, What are some things you can say in closing about finding your own sources and trusting your own thinking and kind of just doing your own research and being prepared for this world of science and this world of information that we found ourselves in? What I would like to say is that if people are going to look up
0: their own sources and they go to reputable places, um, for instance, our our government, if you go to PubMed.gov, that's a source where the National Library of Medicine puts any medical related or psychology related uh, original source online. Now, you might not be able to get access to the journals, but you can at least see the abstracts of the research that's out there. And if you're a student, chances are your library will subscribe to, to those sources. I would say do not stop at the first source you see. Science has to connect. So one scientific study doesn't answer the question on any big topic. Scientists communicate with other scientists, we cite each other, and you kind of have to see where is the entire field in this area. And if there's some disagreement, that's okay, but usually we kind of say that you have to people who find something that's a little bit different from everybody else, the burden of responsibility is on you to show how do my science findings connect with these. Why do I get something different than what everybody else found? It's okay. that's how we get breakthrough findings sometimes. People will bring up well Albert Einstein was breakthrough and nobody thought the things that he was thinking. Yeah, that's true, but he didn't say, yeah, okay, here's general relativity. if you keep following lamestream science, you're just a bunch of sheeple, you know he didn't do that. What he did was he said, okay, everything that we've known up until now, that came from Newton and many others, works. It fits. But so Newton, for instance, talked about how gravity works, but I'm taking that a step further and I'm going to show you what gravity is. It's actually a curvature of space-time. That's stuff that Newton, even though he was right with what he did, couldn't have envisioned. So he connected to it. It it becomes better because you make one big picture out of what's already been found. You don't ignore it. You don't dismiss it. And Chances are, I see that a lot in banner ads, like language teachers hate him. It's, you know, it's probably because you're not doing the right thing. Look at a large set of data. I would say also a really important thing is, is a change. And I think this is what's going to help us all if it happens, is a change in attitude about we, how we approach things. I really, really, really preach humility about our thinking in class. So don't assume you're right. Don't assume you're the smartest person in the room, whether it's a digital or a physical room. You know, be willing to learn and decide ahead of time, okay, what would convince me else uh, differently on this topic? Again, going back to that feeling of, I wanna be right, not just look right. I'd rather keep my mouth shut and learn for a while than throw it out there. And then I have to defend something that's looks more and more ridiculous, right? <laughs> So, I mean, everyone is going to make mistakes, even people who know these things. Like, let me give you a quick pop quiz, right? So I'm looking for two words from you. Correlation does not imply causation. Causation. Yeah, one word. I screwed it up. But um, see, everybody knows that. And every really smart person I've ever had a substantive conversation with has made that mistake, has applied. Yeah. Has said, you know, these things go together. Therefore, this must be causing that. It's like, no, you don't know that. We all do it, and that's okay. But we can also correct each other, even if we're on the same side—not just someone who disagrees with me. And you know, if we can do that, be kind, um, have an open mind. I think you know that's really what's going to get us there.
1: Being kind and being an open mind—very good advice. As we as we wrap up today, so Dr. Peter McLaughlin, Edinburgh University Psychology Department. Thank you so much for joining us today on Tarant Talks. So it was a lot of A lot of things to think about and a lot of things to think about the way we're thinking about it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Chris. This was really a pleasure.